Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Sedam, and welcome back to the Crucial Talks podcast. Before we jump into today's episode with Mark Gober, I'd like to ask you for a quick favor. If you could please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it, I would greatly appreciate it. This way, it's a little easier to find on all the podcast sites. Also, if you ever need to get in touch with me, you can visit my website at www.crucialtalks.com. So today's guest is Mark Gober. His background is really interesting. He is a partner in a Silicon Valley investment bank and strategy firm. He majored in psychology at Princeton, and not just psychology in general, but really focused on behavioral economics. And that's really about how people make decisions and how people behave, but not like the old economics where we're used to people saying, hey, if it's more valuable and there's more data, people would decide to do that. It's really about how the brain works and how people make decisions. So that's a super interesting background. So you might think by talking to Mark, I'm trying to do something a little different than focusing on what we normally focus on, which is human behavior and decision making. And you might be thinking, well, his background in Silicon Valley, maybe this episode will be about the next big investments we'll see in technology or the 10 best startups you can expect from entrepreneurs in the next year. But what we're actually going to talk about is we're going to talk about human behavior and understanding ourselves and others better based on the research Mark has done to write his book, An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. I know that's a mouthful for a title, but I've talked to Mark a little bit. I've heard him on other podcasts. I've done some research on him, and I know he's going to boil it down for us so we can understand it better because that's exactly what his book does. So without further ado, let's welcome Mark Gober to the Crucial Talks podcast. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me, Mike. Hey, anytime. Looking forward to this conversation. Um, but before we do, and before we dive into your book and what it talks about, can you tell us a little bit about you and how you ended up writing a book that people have actually said is shifting how they think about reality? I'm very often asked this exact question. So my background, as you mentioned, is very much in the business world. I'm a partner at Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley. And prior to that, I worked in investment banking during the financial crisis in New York. So that was a very interesting experience. And prior to that, as you mentioned, I studied psychology with a focus on behavioral economics uh, at Princeton. But actually, before I decided to major in psychology, and I was partially in the economics department at one point, I really wanted to major in astrophysics because I wanted to understand how the universe worked. And I had taken a few classes in that area, and I thought it was really fascinating. But I was on the tennis team at Princeton, which is a Division One program, and it was very demanding. So I decided I wouldn't do a late entrance into the astrophysics department and just kind of put that off to the side um, and just stuck with my tennis and behavioral economics. So how does all this relate to my book on consciousness? It was about two years ago where some of my old interests from college about existence came back in a new way. So even though I didn't major in astrophysics, I always continued to think about meaning and why do I do the things that I do? Why do I care about things? And what I had concluded is that life is is not meaningful at all because I thought that we are conscious because of things that are happening in our brains. And therefore, once our brain and our body die, the consciousness and the memories associated with the body must also go away. And that leads to a very bleak outlook because it, it basically says once you're dead, it's over. And if you think that's true, then does, does life really mean anything? I think it can lead to a nihilistic view on life. It was about two years ago that I 
randomly stumbled across podcasts. It was a woman who claimed she had psychic abilities, and she started talking about communicating with the deceased, things that sounded totally outlandish to me. And it didn't change my life in any way. I was just kind of interested that someone was talking about this in a serious way. What didn't sound like she was trying to fool people, just what she was experiencing. So I decided to listen to more podcasts, episodes on this topic. And after a few weeks of listening to various people talk about these things and actually learning of certain science that I wasn't aware of previously, I realized that there was a whole body of stuff that I just had never been exposed to. And if any of that were real, then I had to, I would have to rethink my view on existence and who and what we are as human beings. So the more I researched, the more I realized that something was up that was totally <laughs> counter to what I'd learned, or at least uh, not, not part of what I had learned. And I spent a year's worth of, of research looking into this topic and concluded that I needed to rethink all of existence and that we're basically in for the next paradigm shift really in human history. Uh, but at, at first, I was kind of afraid to tell people about it because the ideas like psychic activities and surviving bodily death, those sound like very outlandish ideas in today's society. But as I became more familiar with the research, I, the friends that I told about this were having positive reactions to it, and they told me their lives were shifting in a positive direction. So I realized that something seemed to be getting through to people, and that led me to sit down in July of 2017 and say, okay, I'm going to put my thoughts on paper. Even though I'm not a consciousness scientist and I still work in Silicon Valley, I'm going to try to write a book. So I sat down over July 4th weekend, ended up finishing more than half of the book that weekend, and then over the next few weekends, I finished it. And I'm hoping with the book that we will rethink this idea that consciousness, that our awareness. So as you're listening to this podcast right now, you are undeniably aware. And that awareness is a subjective inner experience. It's not a physical thing. The big question is, where does that come from? And where, where I have come out after looking at the science is the idea that that awareness is not a product of the body at all. And it, in fact, exists independently. Well, and this is where I find it so interesting because of the fact that, and you said it yourself, right? Your, your message right now is something you were afraid to tell people because of you know, people are going to think, is he nuts? I mean, what is this thing about psychic ability and what are we talking about? And what are we talking about consciousness awareness? But the frame I looked at it, when I started looking at your book and I started doing a little, little research on you in particular just to get ready for this episode, I really thought about the fact that there are things I say on this podcast that are completely based on social science. And I tell people this all the time that, People are social storytellers, but that you can have two people standing right next to each other, looking at the same exact situation, but experiencing it completely differently. So it kind of sounds a little bit like that, that when you're talking about awareness not being a product of the body itself or biology or just chemicals going on in your in your brain, that there's more to it than that. It kind of seems like it fits with that. And I think people understand that, that the person standing next to you can have a completely different experience with the same exact um, things going on around them. Is that kind of what we're talking about here, just to get a little better understanding of it? Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at it. And the, the way I view the brain is, is certainly something that's related to consciousness. So when I talk about the idea that consciousness isn't a product of the brain, sometimes people are confused because don't we already know that when you stimulate a part of the brain that you get a corresponding response? Or if you hurt the brain, then someone has memory loss. 
I view the brains as being sort of a lens through which reality is experienced, almost like an antenna receiver or a filtering mechanism where we are going to perceive the reality of, of the universe through this body brain, which is perhaps what you just described, where people see things from a different lens, even though it's the same thing, because we have a different antenna almost. Our, our mechanism of perception as a body brain is different between us. Well, and I've I've even said this in some of the speeches, keynotes I've given that do we perceive what is real or what is real to us, our perception? I think that's what you're getting at is that reality really happens. It kind of happens to us, but it's kind of created by us, right? Like we can construct it. This this whole idea of social construction of reality, it's a known social science. I mean, it's a a great way to think about how humans behave and how humans interact with each other and how humans make sense of the world around them. So with all of these kind of social science, psychology theories out there, where does your book fit? I mean, it's, it's consciousness at a different level and it's, it's really flipping things on their head, right? Where it's, it's not really talking about the brain creating what's going on around us, but almost the opposite of that. Is that right from what I understand from looking at your book? Yes, absolutely right. And that's why the book is called An End to Upside-Down Thinking. What I regard to be upside-down thinking is my old worldview, and it's the worldview that I think is taught in most academic institutions, which is the notion that the universe works as follows. There was a Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, filling the universe with matter. The matter began to interact randomly through chemical reactions. When you have enough random reactions, you end up with a self-replicating molecule like DNA. DNA leads to the evolution of a human being, which develops a brain, and awareness or consciousness or mind comes out of the brain. That's known as materialism. We start with the material universe. We start with matter. We get consciousness. Matter creates consciousness. What I'm arguing is that we've got it upside down, that consciousness does not come from matter, does not come from the brain. Rather, it exists almost prior to. It's at the very beginning of the chain. It's consciousness, and the physical world is an experience within consciousness. So consciousness really comes down to this notion that it's it, – does it exist on its own, and do we get – do we come from that or how does this how does consciousness exist then and interact with us as people in our everyday lives where we're interacting with other people and other people that are that are conscious how does all that kind of work together in this this world we live in where we just crave social belonging and need to be with each other how does that all work together there's an analogy that I really like from Dr. Bernardo Castro, who describes the framework that I just talked about that, that regards consciousness as fundamental or primary, where if you think of reality as being like a stream of water, where water represents consciousness, and each of us is a whirlpool. We're like localizations of water, but we're still made of water, i.e. consciousness. So we're all interconnected in this in, in the on the basic level of reality, even though we have this appearance of fundamentally being separate. So how, how does it interact with how, – how do we interact in this way? Well, we're, number one, fundamentally connected even though there's an appearance of separation, which has major implications for how we treat one another, how we think about ethics and all sorts of things. Uh, but it also 
suggest that that our that consciousness is not localized to one individual place. That maybe there are whirlpools, but they're still made of water, and there's a big stream. So it means that the mind could potentially access other parts of the stream because it's just part of the stream, and that might be the mechanism at a very very basic level for certain psychic abilities for which I show evidence in the book. So can you give us a couple of those pieces of evidence? I mean, there's there's people thinking right now they're trying to grasp it. There, I I can. I can see them right now trying to think about this in a way that they can understand it. What little piece of evidence are there that points to this this understanding of consciousness? Sure. And this is why I decided to write a book about it because it's not a, it's not a 10-minute conversation. There's just <laughs> it's to to rethink things and look at all the evidence it takes time. So I have chapters on each of the independent areas of study. One that I'll start with is known as remote viewing. And remote viewing is the ability to perceive something when you're not physically there. Again, it sounds totally outlandish. It's like, how is that possible? I need to see something with my eyes. And how could I see something if I'm not physically there? How could I see it with my mind? Well, if we think about the stream, then it's like just accessing another part of the stream somehow by opening up your whirlpool and like delocalizing a bit. What's the evidence for that? Well, the U.S. government ran a program for more than 20 years using psychic spies who were remote viewers. These were people that were able to see things far away for national security purposes. And so people say, well, is that even real? Did the, did the program do anything? The CIA declassified documents within the last few years, and I was, during my research, was looking at those documents because the professors at Stanford or the laser physicists at Stanford who were running the program they all said that it was real. The people who did the remote viewing said it was real. Jimmy Carter, the former U.S. president, had confirmed that remote viewing was used to find a downed uh, Russian bomber in an African jungle that they weren't able to find using remote viewing. So I heard these different anecdotes. I downloaded some CIA documents that were declassified and a direct quote, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. This is in a report that was evaluating remote viewing. Implications are revolutionary. Evidence too impressive to dismiss as mere coincidence. These are just direct quotes from the CIA's own documents. So when you combine that with all the other accounts and studies that were actually done at Princeton University, run by the former dean of engineering, uh, the, the, the lab was shut down in 2007, but it was running for nearly 30 years. They did studies on remote viewing too. So when I look at all this evidence from different areas where people are saying that it was real and it was tested, it suggests that something might have been going on and we could explain it using this metaphor of a stream where we're accessing another part of the stream. And this other part of the stream. So it, it sounds like it goes right in line with the fact that people have always been, they've always been social animals. We've always needed each other and we've always been able to communicate differently than any other social animal on the planet. And that's really through storytelling and sharing ideas and constructing reality with each other. I mean, that's how we got to where we are today and so successful as a species is because we've been able to to share these visions with each other and construct reality with each other. And a lot of things I talk about is this ability for people to communicate through storytelling, create feelings with each other, and be able to to share these broader ideas that we can reach these goals together. So I know that is true. I know all the, the social science studies and all that prove that that is why we are able to accomplish so much. So how does that fit with this idea of consciousness and, and this these streams and whirlpools and how it kind of almost surrounds everything we do? How does that really 
fit with the fact that we do need each other and we do communicate in a way that we can share visions and that helps us work together as people. Mm -hmm. So I think a place to start on that point is the study of telepathy, which is another chapter in my book and it's mind to mind communication. And this is kind of this, what you're suggesting of, of us being social animals and having an interconnectedness of, of creating stories together. What, what I argue with the studies on telepathy is that the storytelling and the communication might also be happening at a non-physical, non-local level in addition to whatever we're, we're telling each other vocally. The, the best studies on this are known as the Gonsfeld experiments. And these are done with everyday people, whereas in the U.S. government program, we were dealing with the superstars, maybe the anomalies, the people that had incredible abilities. The study that I'll reference now is an everyday person, and we still see a, an effect, even though it's subtle, which suggests that we have this communication and potential, potentially collective storytelling that's happening in ways that we don't see. So the basic, basic design goes like this. You have one person in a room, we'll call him Bob. He's in a relaxed state, just chilling out, listening to relaxing music. You have Jane in another room, and Jane is given a picture by the experimenters. The experimenters ask Jane to look at the picture and send a mental image to Bob while Bob is in the other room. Bob isn't looking at the picture. He doesn't know what Jane sees. After a while, Bob comes out of his relaxed state, and the experimenters show him four pictures. They ask him which of the four Jane was mentally sending. Now, we would predict if there were no influence from Jane's mind that Bob would guess correctly one out of four times because it should be totally random. However, what we find is that Bob guesses correctly over many different trials, over different experimenters, many decades. We find that it's closer to 32% rather than 25%. When you do the statistics on this, the odds that that's just a chance occurrence, especially with the number of trials run, is very, very small that it's just a random chance occurrence. So it's suggesting that there is some kind of mental influence for us to be social animals and maybe collective storytellers where we are influencing each other on a very subtle level that kind of comes up um, occasionally where you think of somebody and then they text you or they call you. It doesn't happen all the time. We're not reading each other's minds 100% of the time, but we all have this subtle ability to know things through means that we don't fully understand. Well, I love how you said that because communication, the verbal part of communication is really so small. I mean, even though I can't see you right now, we're far away from each other, but we're still communicating. Yes, we're saying things verbally, but there's always this other level of communication. And it sounds like what you're saying is there is research out there that shows that there may be a lot more to communication than just the words we say. Completely, completely. And when we think about how society will be run and how we interact with one another, it's really important to understand these influences that we don't see with our eyes. I think there's a tendency for us to be biased by what we can actively perceive. And our eyes and our ears and our nose and our mouth and our skin, those act as sensory organs. And we have to sometimes remember that our sensory organs only show us a sliver of the actual reality. I mean, we know that our eyes only see a very small percentage of the electromagnetic spectrum. We know there are all sorts of light that we can't see with our eyes unless we have special equipment. So the notion that there could be these non-physical influences that connect us, um, it's at least plausible if we remember that that's the case. And one other thing I should mention is that you know, I, I reference a study where it's been tightly controlled and done over many decades, but there are a number of anecdotal cases that are even stronger than, the, than the just the 32 versus 25%. For example, 
people that are emotionally close to one another, like a husband and wife. Um, there are studies that suggest that they have a stronger connection in some of these types of telepathic um, studies. Also, twins, where one twin has an event going on and the other twin is far away but seems to know what that twin is going through or know what kind of pain that twin is feeling. So there's something going on socially that is not physical. Well, and what I like about what you said there, because you said that there are anecdotal stories that say that those people that are that are closer, they have this emotional connection and this this stronger connection because of the emotions. And there are tons of studies out there, and I know you know this because of your behavioral economics background, that decision-making happens in the same part of the brain that emotions lie, right? That the same parts of the brain that fire up when we feel anger or love or trust and all those things – Though that part of the brain fires up when we're making decisions, not the mathematical part, not the analytical part, but the part that is actually feeling. And have you seen that in the in the studies in the book that show that this that emotions might be more than what is happening chemically in the brain? Well, I've definitely if you had asked me this two years ago or, or over two years ago, I might've had a different answer in terms of how I think about the brain. I do think about the brain as having an influence on how we experience the world because it's like the lens or the processor or the antenna. So like on a television set, if you're watching TV and the show's on your screen, it comes up clearly and you damage the antenna and then all of a sudden your show looks differently on your screen. It's because you damage the apparatus that is taking a signal in from outside of the set. The signal doesn't come from the set. So when we think about how we are processing emotions, there is a component that is the brain itself as the processor of consciousness, but then there's a part that is independent of the body that's influencing it as well. So I guess what I'm trying to argue with, with the book and, and these topics is that there are influences we need to add, I think, even when we think about behavioral uh, economics and psychology, to recontextualize behavior and how and why we do things. Yeah, and I'm finding so much with what you're saying based on the research I've done in other areas. Because if you like uh, the book uh, Descartes' Error, where he actually looked at the fact that a, I don't know what you call it, a troop of chimps or whatever, but there was a, a chimp that they would they would bring two chimps into this, this group of, of chimps. And one had outwardly appearance, looked physically strong, looked like they can contribute. Um, looked perfect in, in every way, but the part of the brain that feels and has emotion was damaged. But then when they bring in a chimp that has physical ailments, that is noticeably weaker, has has physical disabilities, but that the social part of the brain was intact, that the the other chimps would gravitate toward the chimp that actually had the social part of the brain intact and it's just interesting to me that that is a scientific way to look at this view that you take which is hey look if you have a broken radio it's going to sound way different than if you have a perfectly working radio and is it the physical part of that that's the problem or is it the fact that it's not able to be used in the same way as a lens i find it fascinating that the research you've done in this area of consciousness actually seems to be matching research that is done that focuses on the, the biology of it or mm -hmm. the chemistry of it. I find that I, I really find that fascinating that the two the two agree with each other. It's just now we need to look at well which one 
really is the issue. It oh, is, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a it's a matter of recontextualizing how we think about the brain rather than totally throwing it out. I think the brain's critical in thinking about these issues. But if we think of it as not the producer, but rather a receiver or a filter of consciousness, then we might ju- we might learn more about uh, the the relationship between our experience and the relationship between the how our brain is functioning and how what we can measure there. And so the measuring consciousness. I mean, it's really, really difficult to do, right? I mean, how do you measure consciousness in the ways that that we can understand it? I mean, there's people out there trying it with MRIs and things like that. But if it's if it comes before the material, it really tends to agree with a lot of the actual, uh, I don't know, other, another term to call it, but the physical sciences, it does agree with a lot of the studies that are that are done in the physical sciences, it seems to me that your book and the research you've done, it, it doesn't it doesn't replace or it doesn't say all those studies are wrong. It's just saying, hey, there's another way to look at this that might give us more insight into how we make decisions and how we behave as people. Yes, completely right. It's a, a recontextualization. Of consciousness, so the the chain I described earlier, where we started with matter, we had chemical reactions that led to biology, that led to a brain, that led to consciousness. All I'm suggesting is that we switch the place of consciousness. It doesn't change how we think about the physical. I mean, it recontextualizes it. Chemistry, biology, those still are valid. They're just in a new context. And another thing I'll add, we haven't talked about much, is just this general area of quantum physics. And this was really helpful for me when I got into this. It's a body of physics that's been around for 100 years that is totally counterintuitive but has now been fully accepted. And that's the underpinning of our reality. And it points in this same direction. One thing I'll mention is it's known as the observer effect, which suggests that when we observe a particle, the behavior of the particle changes it's, it acts like a wave, meaning that it is only probabilistic until it's observed, and then it collapses into a particle, which is suggesting that our consciousness is playing some role in at least steering the material world. So we have to remember that consciousness is kind of in a more primary role, and measuring its impact just has to be recontextualized. Yeah, and I love how you say that, that we're recontextualizing. We're, we're trying to we're trying to look through a different lens on how we understand what is actually happening around us. Because when I when I looked at your book, so right in the beginning, I mean, even before the book actually starts, right? It's like the, the introduction or the preface, preface to it, right? <laughs> so I'm looking at it and I flip the pages and I just, I put a little tab here so I can look at it again. But you have this triangle and this triangle is what you were just describing, that the mainstream scientific view is materialism. Materialism really talks about physical matter at the bottom of the pyramid or at the bottom of the triangle, then chemistry, then biological organisms, then your brain, then consciousness up at the top. And I've talked on this podcast in a couple episodes about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how excellent organizations can do the top part of that that pyramid, the top part of that triangle. And I'm looking at these two triangles. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with the physiological, then feelings of safety, then love and belonging, then esteem, then self-actualization. And I tell a bunch of people, hey, normal organizations can do the bottom of that triangle, no problem, right? They can give you a paycheck. They can tell you where to go to the bathroom. They can, you know, provide you money for rent. But the top parts of that triangle where 
excellent organizations exist. And I'm looking at your triangle thinking, man, that's a lot of correlation there, right? Because when we actually get to what people truly want, which is self-actualization, esteem, love and belonging at the top of the pyramid, it really goes with what you're saying about consciousness, that 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 is what that is what is at the at the top of the this I guess the materialism triangle, but in reality, we may be just like in our organizations, we may be looking at the wrong parts. And if we were to look at the right parts, we may actually see higher levels of performance and judgment and behavior. Just like organizations that can do the top part of Maslow's hierarchy, if we as people can start looking at the the consciousness part of this, we may actually see an improve in improvement in performance. Has any of the studies showed an improvement in physical performance or or mental performance in human beings that focus more on these ideas that you put forth in the book? In terms of studies, like formal studies, I'm not sure mm-hmm. about performance, but I'll just say anecdotally, just having talked to so many people who have kind of switched their perspectives, how their lives have shifted, where they think of consciousness as being fundamental rather than a byproduct of matter through a brain, is that they kind of are in alignment with the actual reality in a different way, and life seems to just be smoother for them. They, there's more of an appreciation of the interconnectedness, which when we talk about belonging and love, that has a big Im- impact on it. If we view ourselves as being fundamentally connected as part of the same stream of consciousness and not separate, which I think can imp- influence emotions and well-being, which probably have an impact on performance. Yeah, I love how you said that, too, because it really does. We're talking about people. I mean, we are so complex and there's so much going on with us that this having this better appreciation of interconnectedness, it doesn't only fit with all of your studies, but it actually fits with how people are made to behave. And again, I'm I'm new to your book, I'm new to your thoughts, but there is a lot of there's a lot of cross pollinization on all the research that I've conducted that is that is really different than yours, but there's so much that, that crosses over on how people behave and how we make decisions. So I was wondering if there is anything you could tell us as we kind of close out the, this episode about consciousness and how that impacts decision-making by a person. Well, if we think of our consciousness as being, again, fundamental to the physical and we think of ourselves as being a consciousness first and foremost rather than a body first and foremost, and furthermore, a connected consciousness, I think it does impact how we interact with others because it makes us feel much less separate from one another. Even though it looks like we're really separate, there might be this connectedness that we're not actually seeing. So what does that mean for how we run organizations and how we run businesses and even uh, societies? How do we treat each other in that context? So that's been a big shift for me, even though I always used to like to treat people well. I still viewed other people as being separate from me. And maybe we we have similar genetics because we're similar, we're we're a part of the same species, but we're fundamentally different. When one looks at, at an interconnected perspective, I think it changes interactions, which will shift all parts of someone's life. Yeah, that that completely makes sense to me because I've been, for the last uh, year or so, I have been talking to people as much as I can about the role of social belonging in everyday life and how if we have this this different lens, a view of people as social storytellers, as people 
uh, need esteem and social belonging. We need each other. That can make a big difference in our day-to-day lives just based on the fact that we are part of communities, we're part of organizations, we're part of families. And if we had this, just change our lens to a view of where we we do need all those things and we do need each other, that we actually can change behavior. And that's why I love your book is because it's kind of saying the same thing, that there is an interconnected interconnectedness out there. And it may not just be what we what we have in common as as a biological animal, but there is more out there that we may not be able to explain 100%, but that there's definitely more out there with how we connect as human beings. Yes, yes. And just so another quick anecdote that's, I think, important on that topic you made, because you just you phrased that extremely well. There is something in quantum physics, again, called entanglement which I'm going to simplify this. This is not exactly how it works, but you have two particles that are separate from each other, physically distant. When you affect one, you affect the other one simultaneously. There's an instantaneous effect, which suggests that there's an interconnectedness. And Albert Einstein actually hated this. He called it spooky action at a distance because to him, the speed of light is the fastest that anything can travel. And here we have an apparent interconnectedness because it's an instantaneous reaction. So it shows that at the fabric of the universe, there is some kind of interconnectedness that has been proven since the days of Einstein. And maybe as Dr. Dean Radin, who's a scientist in this consciousness area, he wrote a book called Entangled Minds. Maybe we are all fundamentally entangled in a quantum sense beyond just this this other metaphysical sense. Well, and to kind of close this out, I know you you're running a business. I mean, you're you're doing things out there that you didn't just write a book. I mean, you're actually doing work every single day. You have employees, you have a business, you're successful. Has this changed how you think about your your business and your clients and where your business is going in the future? Do you feel like you have more control over that now with what you have researched and studied? Well, I think it again comes back to this idea of a new picture of reality that is one of interconnectedness rather than separation. So I think about just interactions with people in business in a different way where I see them as being more connected to me and in the in the business of serving people, which is what we do, we're advisors in different capacities. Um, it's It's more of a helping others, which is a form of helping myself because we're connected in a way. So that's just been a mindset shift that is subtle, but I think profound. Well, again, I love how you said that because what we talk about all the time on the Crucial Talks podcast is the fact that shifting how you think really can shift how you make decisions and can shift how other people around you are, are interacting with you and how you interact with them because it is it is super powerful, that mindset shift. So as we close out this episode, what else can you offer people? How can they find out more about you? How can they find out more about the book? And where can they get the book? I'm going to explain it to people real quick. You can't miss it. It's uh, It says an end to upside down thinking. Got a picture of a brain with some different colors in there. You can't miss it if you see it on Amazon. But how can they get a hold of you? What other services do you, do you offer? Do you speak? Do you, uh, do you have a, uh, any other services you offer to people besides the book if they want more information, which I assume they probably will after hearing you talk? My website is the best place to go, which is myname.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com, markgober.com. And I have information on the book, which is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other bookstores. 
Um, I will be coming out with a podcast in which I interview the scientists that I talk about in my book. I've already conducted over 40 interviews and have recorded them, and I'm now just working with a producer to actually turn it into a show. So within the next few months, that should be out. And I have a media page on my website, so it's markgober.com slash media, and it's a tab on the website that has the interviews that I've conducted so far and some articles that I've written. When I say interviews I've conducted, where people have interviewed me, um, some of the articles that I've posted, and I've been doing more public speaking, was just in Italy twice over the last few months, and I found that people are interested in the topics. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, I think it, I love it because it gives people a different lens. I know we've used that term a lot, but a different lens to look through when they're talking about dealing with others, learning about themselves, and that's really been my whole my whole goal this whole time is to just get people to shift the way they think a little bit so we can have a more positive, strength-based approach to human behavior. So everybody out there, go check out the book, the website, www.markgober.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. More information on the book is there. More interviews are there. And Mark, we're going to be looking for that podcast because I know I'm going to be listening to it because it sounds absolutely fascinating that you're going to talk to people that really have a lot to do with what you say in the book. So thanks again, everybody, for listening. If you get a chance, please visit the website at www.crucialtalks.com and feel free to connect with me via email or on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. I love connecting with people. I know we're stronger together, so have a great week. And remember, if we want to understand behavior, we need to understand what drives people.